Welcome back to Clinical Veterinary Recruiting Insights. I'm your host, Brad McMillan of RPM Research, and I'm joined today by Dr. Bruce Bernacki. Throughout his 35-year veterinary career, he's held positions as chief clinician, researcher, attending veterinarian, and animal welfare officer in a myriad of environments, private practice, federal government, academia, research, CROs. So Bruce ensures that animals are utilized within an organization are guaranteed the highest level of care so as to achieve their maximum health potential while providing the highest level of results from their research protocols. So today we're going to discuss veterinary career options and observations. So much has changed over his 35 plus year career. Uh, Bruce and I met in 2014 in a recruiting capacity when he was looking to hire clinical veterinarians. We've worked together in several organizations, including lab animal supplier and contract research organizations. So we've both seen changes in the industry and organizations organizations that we support. So Bruce, uh, what, what else I leave out? So for me, going through veterinary school, that once in a lifetime position for my life go moving forward, I wanted to know exactly, or I wanted a lot better idea of what this degree of veterinary medicine could get me. And so with that, um, I had always also been told that you need to practice in a true clinical setting, not depicting which species, but in a true clinical setting, everybody needs to practice at least one year. And I get that because I've been around the block with a number of veterinarians who have practiced. And I could tell because they think uh, a lot better on their feet, so to speak, versus people who have never practiced. And they've, they've gone through the gyrations of working cases up, but you could tell that it was always in a golden cage kind of an environment. So for me, I wanted to know what could I, what could I get with a degree? I was going to go into practice right off the bat. And I was going to maintain practice and I was going to maintain an equine practice. And that really didn't work out. But also when I was in veterinary school, I realized that there was a military part of veterinary medicine, whether it was the Army or the Air Force, that they were more than willing to hire. I realized that there were regulatory positions, let's say with the USDA, not just as what they would say as meat inspectors. I knew that there was positions with the public health service. I knew that you could go into sales. I knew that that could be pharmaceutical or uh, medical instrument type of sales. And of course, there was academia out there. I wasn't so I wasn't so on top of or aware of the laboratory animal CRO setting because back in '83 to '87, when I went to school, that was not a strong component of uh, the veterinary education professional capabilities once you graduated. And so from there, I've worked my way through the past 35 years at a myriad of positions, as you've already said, but the last part of my professional career now is trying to advise um, clients, so to speak, with the uh, terminology being used as being a consultant. And that's what I've been doing for, I'd say right now, since uh, beginning of 2020. And or, so, or some might say the consigliere. Pardon me? And so, or some might say the consigliere. Well, yeah, an advisor. So, you know, consultant is, a, is, a, is an interesting word. Advisor is an interesting word. For those of us that are uh, into the Godfather series, the consigliere, where he was, on he was on the Dom's elbow to advise him, to caution him, to remind him that, hey, back 11 years, this happened. Remember that? Maybe we should go this way. And after 35 years in private practice, in uh, an academia type of setting with MD Anderson, with uh, uh, directorship, with uh, a private facility in Texas, with NHPs, with mice, with a myriad of different species, some people do think that I could bring forth an effort, and that's why the consultantship has been going strong. Nice. Or stronger than I would like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's let's jump back to your uh, to your early career. Um, you know, you were a uh, you, you were an equine vet. 
you know, started out there for, for two years. Uh, my understanding is out at the, the racetrack helping people. And, you know, what'd you, uh, what'd you learn even if uh, what you didn't want? Well, for me, the whole evolution into the equine species, and that's what I wanted to dedicate myself to, that normally doesn't happen to a guy that grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, in a very urban setting. But when I went to Purdue, which is not in, a, in an urban setting, but a very laid back farm type community setting, all of a sudden things like cows and horses were becoming part of uh, my day-to-day existence, particularly when I was striving to get as much experience uh, to put forth on my application. And I fell in love with the equine species. Um, I've always said to those that have known me, uh, horses are just big dogs. <laughs> and they are, they are a marvelous species, whether it's a pleasure horse, whether it's a show horse, whether it's a race horse, whether it's a workhorse like the old draft horses, um, just, just amazing animals. And so I wanted to become a great equine vet. And I ended up going to take my first job um, out of vet school at an equine racetrack. And that evolved because I wanted to get as much horse experience day to day as I possibly could. And unless I kind of weaseled my way into some extraordinarily successful equine practice in the bluegrass state, um, a racetrack was about the only one that would work out with pure volume. And it did, because on average, I saw 60 horses a day. Wow. So that's, that's how I started in the equine world. And it was on the thoroughbred racetrack. What did it teach me? I think that's what you also rolled me through in the beginning three minutes ago. Uh, it, it taught me to think on my feet. My boss, who was not my boss at the time that they I was recruited there, he said, this isn't a job for everybody. As we're walking around, what they call is the shed rows, where all the horses are stabled. And it's just an amazing collection of activity. It's like a beehive. Things going every which way all the time. And he said, if you could work here, you could work anywhere. Because we don't have these gilded cage clinics. We don't have these opulent settings. You've got to learn how to do everything pretty much on a horse who's standing up. And I say it like that because when I was trained to do some horse-like things in vet school, most of the time, that 1,100-pound animal was laying on its side in a surgical setting. Now, on a racetrack, you learn to do leg exams. You learn to do castrations. You learn to do uh, respiratory workups. You learn to do everything uh, with the horse standing. And that logistically throws your uh, diagnostic capabilities into an arena that isn't normal. You got to think MacGyver-like sometimes. And I had some emergencies on the track where, you know, we don't have an army of people helping you. I have an animal that has slit its throat literally from ear to ear. And we have to sew up not only the soft tissue and the muscles, but we have to sew up potentially part of the windpipe in a setting that is in the shed row again. So wow. it's just, yeah, it's, it taught me to be better on my feet. It taught me to be more independent. And it, it taught me also a lot of life's ways. Coming from an urban environment in Hartford, Connecticut, I thought I was pretty hip to, you know, the proverbial other side of the track. Well, no pun intended. The racetrack is truly the other side of the track. <laughs> Very you, nice. You, you, have like an, you have an element of society that is the foundation of the workforce there that you could see it every day. Everything that they own literally is in a wad of bills that's stuck into their shirt pocket. They're working hard, but they're also very dependent on a number of things in society, which isn't always good, alcohol, drugs, whatever. Then you have uh, the seedy side of the ownership. 
many of the owners don't aren't there at the track. The trainers are, but the owners are giving them the input. Well, where are the owners? They're 1,200 miles away. They're in Florida. They're in New Jersey. But boy, are they connected. And if you mess up, there are times when your own well-being comes into question because you have just robbed them of the opportunity, as they said to me a couple of times, to put food on my family's table. And I, I had to get used to that. And it's hard to get used to with people threatening to break your arm literally once or twice a month. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it keeps you grounded, really, I would say. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't that was back in the days when you didn't have cell phones and 911 capability at your fingertips. It, 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 what it did was it also made me and I'm not saying that all racing is is unethical, but I was not working on a real expensive racetrack. As a matter of fact, I worked on a racetrack where the horses had been, for whatever reason, injured, and they didn't pan out to be as successful as when they purchased these yearlings at like the Keeneland sales, which is a world famous sale every year. Oh, yeah. Zillions of money. Yeah, is, is exchange. I got those animals after they were injured. And so we, we called them rats for because they were a dime a dozen. And with that mentality, the trainers didn't have an awful lot invested in them either. And so there were times when, for me, a new grad coming out, naive to the ways of the racetrack, where I was being asked to borderline be unethical. And I was having a hard time with that. And that was really what kind of drove me away uh, to, to leave. It, hmm. it, it was wildly uh, profitable. Oh my God, is there a lot of money involved, not only for new veterinarians, but for everybody. But I just, ethics is, is, is important to me. And again, I'm not saying that all racing is unethical. I'm saying that there were certain trainers on this particular track that I worked on that were more than comfortable with asking me things that were either blatantly illegal or borderline unethical. Wow. Wow. So you, so you went on to go to the military. So you went from sort of the, uh, the, the, the wild West to the, uh, to, to the marching line. Um, you know, how did you, how did you see that difference? Well, so going back to <clears throat> 10 minutes ago saying, I wanted to know what my vet degree could afford me. I realized that there was a military component and there was a gentleman, he was a retired Lieutenant Colonel from the air force veterinarian that I worked for, um, in my beginning year as a freshman in vet school. And it was work study program. He was in the anatomy. He was a histologist pathologist. And he always said to me, because I worked for him for two plus years. You know, if private practice, Bruce, doesn't work out when you graduate, you could always go in the military. Well, I got to the military point because when I left the thoroughbred racetrack, I went back to Indiana, the state where I got my degree from, and joined a small animal practice not too far out of Indianapolis, where it was dog, cat, but the guy was going to allow me to do some horse work if I wanted to on the side. That didn't work out because he was not an honest person. And I all of a sudden, after two forays into the work environment, thought, what am I going to do? I don't have enough money to buy a practice. I can't go to my parents to buy a practice. I thought I could be a good practitioner because I thought I could at least communicate. I wasn't the best academic veterinary student. I was about a C plus veterinarian, but I knew that I could communicate and therefore put together the game plan for the client. I think better than some of those uh, earlier classmates of mine that were great academic people. So I remember Dr. Uh, 
I won't mention his name. <laughs> he told me about the Air Force. And so I waltzed in, literally called up a recruiter, wanted to, wanted to find out what they do for veterinarians. And, you know, once the smoke and mirrors from the recruiting part, because they're going to whine you, they're going to dine you, because you're a professional with a degree, which sets you up better theoretically for uh, positions that, you know, regular enlisted, and I don't mean to say regular because the enlisted people are the backbones to the operation, whether it's the Marines, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, Coast Guard. But once I got through the smoke and mirrors, I really wanted to know what was this career going to allow me to do? And the uniqueness of the military life in the Air Force was they recruited veterinarians to do veterinary work but also do communicable disease work. And so you're almost, it's a hybrid position between veterinary stuff and uh, medical doctor physician stuff. And let me elaborate on that. The veterinary stuff wasn't doing spades, castrations and neuters. The veterinary stuff was talking about zoonotic diseases and, and really elaborating on Okay, what zoonotic diseases are in the area of the base that you're stationed at? How does it impact not only the people that are working on the base day to day, but how does it impact on the people who are maybe the family members that are not living on the base, that are off base? And how does that, how does that affect? How does it affect the workload going back to this company called the United States Air Force? They also were into food, food sanitation, wholesomeness, and so we as veterinarians were in charge of anything that had to do with food on the Air Force base. So it's the commissary, the grocery store, any of the food establishments, restaurants, O clubs, NCO clubs, Burger Kings. We were making sure that the quality and effectiveness of the food was wholesome. And that that was still a pretty good thing for me. I didn't want to I didn't want to just be a quote unquote meat inspector. But there's an awful lot to do when you look at food and wholesomeness, because one of the things that the Veterinarians for Air Force does is potentially, if there's a foodborne illness outbreak, you are the lead investigator for that. And you're dealing with people who have either been in the hospital or are still in the hospital because they aren't doing well, because something that they ate was tainted with a pathogen and they got very sick and that's pretty cool that's pretty cool detective work but then conversely going over to the physician the medical side this hybrid that i alluded to we got into occupational health and safety so air force bases are giant factories some factories work with uh top secret airplanes like my tenure at uh, Edwards Air Force Base in California. Some factories deal with large airplanes that are transporters. Some factories deal with, this is where all the food for Asia comes into a base in the Philippines and they bring it into this giant factory and then they distribute it out within a 10,000 square mile area where a number of other Air Force bases are. And so dealing with the occupational health and safety aspect of it, as a teacher, because that's what uh, veterinarians are, we're called public health officers, and trying to teach and mitigate out these areas of the work area that could be detrimental to the people who are working. Ergonomics, uh, paint shops, welders, I mean, uh, just a ton of things. I, at Edwards Air Force Base, there were 238 different designated workshops that our office was in charge of making sure that everybody that was working in those workshops with all these different hazards were taught how to go about their business day to day so that they didn't get injured. It was pretty cool. Nice. Nice. So, you know, what would you, what would you say to those wanting to go into a military program for lab animal medicine? I mean, they certainly have lab animal medicine programs within the uh, within the military where you know you end up uh, you know going through almost a residency is that correct yes but when you when you when you dictate 
that it's laboratory animal medicine, then what you've done is, and this is great because you've honed it down to you are then joining the United States Army. The United States Army is the one military member that will hire veterinarians for a myriad of different jobs. But one of the hallmarks for what they'll hire the veterinarians for are to become laboratory animal medicine specialists. And you come in as an officer. So you've graduated vet school. You come in as an officer. At this day and age, the pay is way above average. Your benefits are excellent. And then they will make sure (laughs) that you will get in to a laboratory animal medicine program. Most likely it's going to be through, and I can't remember what the exact acronym known as U-Shoes stands for, but they will then have you rotate through U-Shoes for your laboratory animal residency. And what you, you continue to move up the pipeline through that career development sector. But at the same time, you're also vying for promotions within the military at higher rank, which then does what? Pays you more. And so you're earning a very nice living. You're not quite going to school for free because when you graduate, the formula is for every year that they put you through school, you owe them two years in the military. So if you went to U-Shoes and most of them get a PhD saddled up with the laboratory animal residency certificate. But if you went and got a master's, you would owe two years. And two years is the minimum anyhow for a laboratory animal residency program. If it's PhD related, so you've got that thesis, which typically takes another year to maybe two years. Okay, so that would be, let's say that's two years on top of the two years of the residency program. So that's four years that they put you through. You would owe them eight years uh, of military commitment. And I would have to double check that. I don't think that they've reduced it to one year. So it'd be one for one. But there was a time when they were thinking about it because they really want veterinarians. They need veterinarians. Very nice. Very nice. So what did you see in kind of that that difference in org structure in just in an organization as large as the military? And, you know, did that you know, play an impact on on your career and career decisions? Yeah, the rigidness. Yeah, that's a great question. The rigidness that the military affords you, I'll put it that way, is you you learn to respect the people who you are working with and working for, for the people that you are evaluating and for the people that are evaluating you. So this whole org chart structure um, uh, it, it is there, and, I, and I'll say it like this, to enjoy. Well, what's enjoyable out of it? Because they make it very simple. You stay in the chain of command. When you have something that you don't care for and you can't resolve it on your own, you go up the chain to your one up and you make your case to that individual. And to be thinking like that has always kept me in a much better light of not being so roguish and so spontaneously roguish to just go, I don't want to say off on people but off on people. Do it the right way. Work the chain. If I have a problem with you, Brad, and we're not working in the same shop, but you're you're causing great problems for me day to day, I'm going to go to your one up in your chain, and I'm going to try to explain myself to them. That concept is invaluable. That concept, if in my opinion, If most people were indoctrinated that way, we would have far less uh, convoluted, long drawn out problems because you wouldn't, you you, you just, you would go to the one up, 
explain your process to them. Hope that that one up is going to do due dil, do diligence and make it happen. The other thing that the military exposed me to was this acronym called SOPs. I didn't know an SOP if it smacked me in the face going through vet school, going through the racetrack. But they have to have a way of training their folks, whether it's the astronauts all the way down to the what we call are the no stripers. They're so brand new, they don't even have anything on their sleeve. But they have to know how to do the basic tenets of whatever their job description is. And everybody has a job description there. And, and that's another beautiful effect because you want to know what are you being expected to do? Well, an easy way to remind yourself is just go find your job description. And it's basically going to be about 94% that. I say 94% because on any given base, they have a main component. What's driving that base's you know, number one function? Earlier, I said Edwards Air Force Base was top secret uh, airplanes. So that 6% is in the top secret, is that top secret element there. And for me, it was working on the space shuttle. Um, but You're not SOP, supposed to tell the secrets. Pardon me? You're not supposed to tell the secrets. That's why no, it's a secret. I don't, I don't tell the secrets, <laughs> but I have to understand that there are certain secrets that I am capable of knowing and then some secrets that I'm not capable of knowing, which might impact my work area because I'm not briefed into that level. Everybody has heard this next phrase. I didn't have a right to know. And at Edwards, there was a lot of levels that I didn't have a right to know, <laughs> programs that they call black programs, super top secret programs. Every once in a blue moon, I would get briefed in on an emergency basis because of whatever my public health officer's job um, was bringing me there. If it meant going into a top secret hangar where it was the YF-22 or the YF-23 was parked in there, which was the second coming to the F-16 development, super top secret program, then so be it. But I was only briefed in for that particular day because my normal secret, my top secret level wasn't good enough to be in there. Some people eat that crap up and some people, you know, myself, I was okay with it, but don't, not too much, N not too much. But going back to the SOPs and the job description makes things pretty rigid where if that no striper wants to know, okay, now how do I, how do I test the water for quality and assurance? Oh, here's what the SOP said. Bup, 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 bup. A plus B plus C plus D. And that's a beautiful thing about the military. So, you know, moving from, you know, military into academia, <clears throat> you know, academia certainly has rules, rules different than, uh, than industry. When you moved over, you know, what did you see were some of the similarities and differences? Well, my academia was, it, it what the position wasn't a hundred percent, what we would call a straight academia. I'll elaborate. I worked for the number one cancer hospital in the world. I was able to get a job with the number one cancer hospital in the world, MD Anderson Cancer Center. The position for veterinarians within that structure there, it's, it's a, like a three-legged stool. Most of your job, most of your FTE, full-time employment, is clinical because you're a veterinarian. Another part of it is research because you're at a hybrid institute. It's a hospital, but it's also a research hospital. And so it's part research and then education, because education is always a huge part of any area that affords you a faculty position. I had a faculty position with MD Anderson Cancer Center. So technically, I was in an academic-like setting. We were expected to uh, provide some research, whether it was my primary research or secondarily, I was supportive of it. And also we were expected to publish, sometimes primary author, sometimes secondary tertiary authors to maintain our faculty status within this hybrid hospital research entity known as MD Anderson Cancer Center. So, uh, and, and those positions, they're not everywhere, but there are certain hotbeds for positions like that. And Houston is one of the hotbeds. Because if you've ever been down in Houston, 
where MD Anderson's main hospital is, is that you also have Southern Methodist, you have Baylor, you have all these huge academic entities that also own hospitals. So you're not only working as a veterinarian on the animals that are part of the research for those hospitals, but you're also part of the research for the academic arm and element of that hospital. I hope that makes sense. No, no, it does. What would you say is some of the differences in pace between military and that, you know, sort of quasi-academic research environment? Whoa, okay. Well, pace, it's going to be, there's a lot of elements to pace in the military. And I'll go back to what is the primary and secondary function of the base that you are uh, that you are stationed at. Okay. At Edwards, it was incredibly fast-paced. I mentioned we had 238 workshops. We had development of planes constantly. When you have development of planes constantly, you sometimes have things called accidents. And with those accidents, because you're part of the structure of the hospital, when you're a veterinarian in the Air Force, you become involved one way or another. And for me, I was in charge of the decontamination team for Edwards Air Force Base Hospital. And that was no slight because we were also the main base to land on for the shuttle at that time. And so the decon team worked hand in hand with NASA constantly with the shuttle because the shuttle, there was a time when shuttles were landing there literally at least once a month. And we were always practicing. We were always what if scenarios. And so we were always busy. So that job for me at Edwards was very busy. My next job in the Air Force at Brooks School of Aerospace Medicine in San Antonio, not as busy because now I was in true academia because now I was involved with the people that were training the public health officers of which I was one. Now we were training the newbies coming in that wanted to be public health officers. And so we put together lesson plans, we taught classes, and that's what we did. Workload, pace, a lot less. In academia, depending on where you are, if you're at academia, let's say at UC Davis, but you also have a primate center associated with you. So you've got 10,000 animals that are just outside. Your pace is probably going to be a lot more uh, fast-paced a lot more active than if you were at a small university in academia where you have, you know, some mice, some rats, a couple dogs, eight primates, you're not going to be as busy. So for me, it would be, you would be as busy as you pretty much want to make it. And that's, that's an element of our workforce that for me, are you a self-starter? Or are you just willing to cash the check, bring the lunch pail in, show up at eight, leave at four, et cetera, et cetera? Okay. So in in academia, um, you know, what do you see or what was your experience in the contributions towards research? So research for animal health, research for animal welfare versus research producing contributions to drug development and therefore drugs in humans. So So, did you see sort of that clear path between what I'm doing is going to put a drug in a human? Well, I didn't really see the clear path in my initial stages at MD Anderson. Because for me, that position was unlike anything that I could ever imagine. It's not not taught at the vet school. Oh, by the way, there's these high-spring positions. No, I, I saw how research would impact because of my capabilities of developing some expertise, ultrasound, flexible endoscopy, rigid endoscopy, particularly in non-human primates, which was one of the top species that that institution I was working for was utilizing. And I could see where the researchers, because I would meet with them, to talk about a new protocol, 
we worked on a protocol to develop a uh, vaccine against HIV from 1996 to 1999. And to see where it was going to go was amazing. A, there's no vaccine for HIV. There still isn't. B, they were going to literally their bedside. So we talk about drug development, vaccine development, where it goes from bench to bedside. Bench being the animals that you do, you utilize it in. Bedside, the humans that you've now gotten approval from the FDA. The researcher, the research team that I was working with wanted to fast track the HIV vaccine. So they went ahead and made an agreement with the country of Nambia in Africa to develop this HIV vaccine. Oh, by the way, at that particular time, 58% of all females that are pregnant in Nambia were positive for HIV. So to be able to see how what we ended up working out in, in four years in non-human primates to show that we could protect a newborn human was phenomenal. That's what really grabbed my attention in the initial stages. Just wow. amazing. And then to see the accolades, because what happens when you do research that's really good? You want to publicize it. Those things are called publications. And we had some publications in Nature Medicine, National Society Academy of Sciences, that there's no way that this, this guy that went to Purdue University could ever imagine being part of those publications as a researcher, but there my name was. And it was because of the position that allowed me to be able to get that, to wow. get that. Wow. Now, working it forward, not to get too far ahead, but with the CROs, the contract research organizations that I then became part and parcel to at the, let's say the last third of my professional career, there you really see the pipeline from bench to bedside. And you can really, if you want, to continue to keep abreast of what was that drug? How are they doing? And one of the programs for an institution I used to work for that likes to share with their employees is known as Why It Matters. And this is where the company would actually go back to the sponsor for that particular test article to see what it was doing in the human world. And then we share it back to the employees at the institution. That's cool. Probably some of the most powerful moments I've ever been involved with, part of, parcel to, has been the why it matters end of it. And it's like, I get it. I absolutely get it. I'm going to leave you with this last one. My wife, 12-year breast cancer survivor. The drug that she doesn't have to take anymore, called tamoxifen, before she was my wife, before she was my girlfriend, at that number one cancer hospital in the world that I was working for, we actually, I was actually the veterinarian on a program that was utilizing macaques to study the toxic effects of tamoxifen. It was with those approvals afforded by the FDA that then put it to bedside into patients. And one of those patients is my beloved wife. Wow. That's fantastic. That is phenomenal. Um, glad, glad to see that she is a uh, you know, long-term, uh, you know, long-time survivor. So that's, that's phenomenal. Congratulations to you both. Um, so in, in academia, um, you know, from our earlier conversations, it sounded like, you know, that was where you had gained some, you know, management experience. How, how would you compare the management experience in academia versus some of the management experience in the, the, the CRO world? Um, well, it's probably not as rigid uh, as it is in the CRO world, CRO world, because in the CRO world, that's business. And I'm not saying that there's not empathy and caring for the use of animals in the CRO, because there is. It's actually 
because it's more fast paced also, it actually is a little bit of a harder, more of a challenge. But because of the business entity, now, 15 years ago, academia is a little bit slower. Academia, the business end of it, the money end of it, usually is grant driven. Grants are those things that are awarded for one year, three years, five years. And you have this <clears throat> production line, you have this, you have to report your, your processes, your wins and your losses throughout the year, year one, year three, year five. You might re-up for the grant, you might get the grant again. But because of the nature of that, the conveyor belt in academia, for most part, does not move along as fast as it does in sure. the CRO. Sure. Um, so, it, so managing people was different. Managing people had, you know, a lot less, you know, rigid structure. But do you think that man the management experience that you gained in academia? translated directly into, you know, the management uh, experience that you were tapped for for industry? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, 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 just because it might move a little bit slower at, let's say, Emory University or University of Connecticut or my beloved Purdue University doesn't mean that it still is without some sort of structure there, some organization there. As a matter of fact, with the academia, that was the first time I was ever involved with something called the IACUC, Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee, which governs the research, whether it's research academia, research CRO, but at the time academia, to make sure that it's valid, to make sure that the research makes sense, to make sure that something called the three R's is not being bastardized. And so there's a tremendous amount of effort that you could learn, that I was able to learn, particularly in, in that academic setting, particularly from getting exposed for the first time to the IACUC and the organizational structure that exists in that academic setting, which then has an IACUC, so that you maintain an alliance of good animal health, care, and well being and research soundness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you had, uh, you'd mentored a, uh, a number of students, uh, over 100 veterinary students. Who stood out to you and why? Uh, what types of people and, uh, you know, who made an impact on you? Yeah, of course, I'm not going to name any names. Uh, but I will say that part of one of the most enriching elements of my jobs but particularly the job from MD Anderson moving forward has been able to craft these externships where veterinarians that were still in veterinary school, some of them were nothing more than sophomores, freshmen, juniors that wanted to come and get some experience. Um, some were under formal programs for senior veterinary students where they could come and spend because their senior year at Purdue, we called them blocks. We had senior blocks. The blocks were five weeks long. Some of the blocks were mandatory that you had to take, but some of the other blocks were where you were able to create and carve what you thought was going to be your, your livelihood. And so some folks, veteran students, seniors, would come hang out with me because they wanted nine human primate experience. And then, um, particularly through the ACLAM, which is the governing body over laboratory animal residency programs in the United States, where they made it mandatory way back in the day that you had to have at least a month's worth of non-human primate experience per year in that residency program. Well, all of a sudden, the area that I was working in was insanely popular. So I was getting <laughs> inquiries from academic institutions in Louisiana, New York, Colorado, Missouri, Oklahoma, California, Arizona. And what this did was it set up a pipeline of opportunities, not just for the students and the residents to come, but also for myself, 
fellow clinicians and veterinary technicians that we worked with, because it's, it's kind of cool to surround yourself with young minds. You know, I'm, I'm not that much of an old timer. Yes, I'm older. I still know how to practice, but it's so cool when you get in some of these nuances from these students, whether they're veterinary students or residents, and you learn from them. And that's one of the greatest elements of being able to hang around and bang around with this greater than 100 students that I've been able to do. Met some amazing individuals, and these are some of these are lifelong relationships too, which are amazingly powerful and enriching. You know, we talk about enrichment for animals all the time. Well, we're animals. <laughs> and this is amazing enrichment for, for this human primate. And nice. it sets up relationships where as you move through your career and you go to the conferences, I don't want to tell you how rewarding it is for a student who 15 years earlier thinks that you don't remember them and they come up to thank you, shake your hand, thank you, and go and start out with, I know you don't remember me, Dr. Berdaki. And I go, oh, no, I remember you. <laughs> I, I absolutely do. And it's so heartwarming. And it, it's part of the job that, I don't want to get too sappy, but they don't have to pay me to do that. They just, my bosses were always incredibly supportive for me and the educational component. And there's a lot of these positions out there where you can do these educational components. And as I said earlier, it's amazingly enriching. And it's almost like the gift that keeps on giving when you run into them later on in life. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So why did you, uh, why did you end up transitioning out of academia into, uh, into industry? Well, had this burning desire. Not, I'm not a micromanager, but I had this burning desire that I had to run the whole show. So when I was at MD Anderson, I was head of all the clinicians. I was running the rhesus colony. I was a couple of times I was running the chimpanzee colony. And that's great. But I wasn't the director for the site. And there was just something in me that said, huh. Can you do it? Can your communication skills and your management skills and your mentoring skills, can you translate that over to a large group setting? And the opportunity afforded itself for me in Alice, Texas, they called me out of the blue. And next thing I knew, five and a half months later, I was starting a whole new position as a director uh, for a large non-human primate concern in Alice, Texas. I had 80 plus people running, working with me, not for me, with me. And it's, it's an amazing culture. It's, it's just not veterinary medicine there. It's facilities, it's environmental impact, animal rights groups, uh, husbandry, people's lives, what's going on in the neighborhood. Because when you, when you employ 50, 60, 80, we were the third largest employer in Dallas, Texas at the time. It's amazing how much impact you have into the, I call it a neighborhood, into the local society. And it, it's, if you don't dwell on it, it's great. If you really dwell on it, yeah, you could, you could drive yourself cuckoos. But I wanted, I wanted a chance to prove to myself in the latter stages of my career, I knew I was an above average clinician. I knew how hard I worked to try to get to that point. I had some great opportunities that I could still be with, but I didn't have the opportunity at that institution to be able to run it. And I just wanted the opportunity. And that's when this outside institution called me up, went through the interview process and bam, that's it. Wow. And they had, what, capacity for, what, 3,500, 4,000 non-human primates? Yeah, that facility in and of itself, 4,000 would be, you know, kind of like that sign on the, re on the restaurant, you know, maximum capacity, 240 people. Well, <laughs> maximum capacity for that facility was 4,000 non-human primates. Yeah. 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 Which at that time, 
versus my academia, even though I was running a breeding colony, we had 1,300 animals. When you now have a revolving door where on any given day, your average is somewhere between three and 4,000 non-human primates, that's a busy environment. And, and when you're the director, it's even busy because now you not only have to worry about whether the bay trail works on, you know, Camp Lebacter, which it doesn't, but that's another story, another day. Um, you know, you now have to take into a whole different juggling system and uh, wearing a lot of hats. You need to, a good director, and I've worked for a few really good directors. One thing that they had in common, they were great communicators. They were great leaders. And if you're not a good communicator, being a director of a lot of people probably is going to be very difficult. Hmm. So, you know, you managed veterinarians in academia. You managed and oversaw the management of veterinarians in industry. Where did you see the difference in pace for those veterinarians? I know we talked about sort of the, the, the business and sort of sort of dictates that pace, but I, I want people to get a better understanding of the difference in pace between academia and the difference in pace in, uh, in, in industry. Well, I mean, in industry, again, it does you no good to have animals sitting there as, as I would say, collecting dust. Those animals that you've brought to that facility is no different than the rolls of toilet paper at the local grocery store. They, they expect that toilet paper to be on that shelf like 7.3 days. After that, they see the product margin going down. So it, it workload, going back to the premise of the site, if the premise of the site is to generate revenue, then all the areas that would take away revenue, you need to be savvy to. And one of the things is animals that are languishing. Of course, too many people per, yeah, that, that's the other thing too. Oh, a supply chain, bad, right? Quality of your product, where are you getting your product from? Uh, where are you getting these animals from? Do you audit those facilities? Are they a good facility? If you get garbage, it's like the old computer acronym, G-I-G-O, garbage, garbage in, garbage, garbage out. out. And so your pace in, in a, <clears throat> you call it a CRO, let's call it industry because the facility that I ran in Alice, it was not in and of itself a CRO. It was an animal holding facility that was CDC quarantine related too, by the way, that would then funnel, portal these uh, animals to the CRO site that was 2,300 miles away. So I was like an umbilical cord that would connect these animals. But the pace is much faster. The pace is much faster because the people have to be cognizant if they want to run an efficient business to know where's the losses, how are they generated, where do you want to stay away? Academia, they try to sometimes go to it. Some of the institutions, especially now. Hmm. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you need money. I mean, belt tightening, even before the pandemic, belt tightening has really become part of you either know really how to do it or you don't. And where's the proof? The proof is at the end of the year. The proof is, are you in the black or are you in the red? You know, you were, you were pretty successful there. Um, Where? At, Where? At, 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 in, in Alice, Texas. How'd you, how'd you do it? How, how did you make a successful transition into industry? What were some of the, uh, the guidelines, you know, guiding principles, you know, that you followed? Yeah. Well, so one of the things that I, I don't know. I just, I just know. I, I, I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box. I, 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 I said earlier I was C plus. I'm not bad mouthing C plus students. What I'm trying to say is, is that there's room if you understand your deficiencies. I'm not a good surgeon. 
if I was working in an area or a leader in an area where there was a lot of surgery, I'm not going to be so egotistical that I have to be the one. Uh-uh. If I'm going to be good, I'm going to recognize that I'm not the one, but I'm going to have a number one. And it goes to the premise of you're really only as good as the people you surround yourself with. Mm -hmm. And I've been blessed to interact, have relationships. Oh, by the way, we talked earlier about all the students. Quite a few of those students interacted with me later on when they were making money. <laughs> and it was a pleasure because you're watching that seed that you planted now grow into fruition. Oh, and it's also helping me as the director. So you need to surround yourself with people and you need to be honest with yourself and you need to be honest with the people. And in other words, you need to be a good communicator. They have to know where you're going. Where's the site going? What are the goals? What, what are the goals coming up for this next year? What are the goals for the first quarter, second quarter? You make those goals known and then you track those goals with the different sections on that site. You enjoy the wins. You suffer through the losses, but you learn from the losses. You're going to be a lot better off and you're going to be successful. And I was blessed to have some really good folks at Alice that were already on board. And I was also blessed to interact with some folks that weren't on board yet, but we were able to bring them over and incorporate them into our workforce. And when you build that team, you know, it's just like a baseball manager, basketball manager, coach. You're only as good as the players out on the court. And how are they going to go about your business? You want people to be honest. You want people to be hardworking. And you want people that are going to be dedicated. And it's so interesting to look at a brand new grad versus a three-year experience, seven-year experience, 15-year experience, 20-year experience. If you can get all those elements still juking and jiving when they're 15 years, 20 years, and they're still out there, they're in it to win it, you're going to have an amazingly successful team. I don't care what you have. I don't care what you're trying to sell. I don't care what animal you're dealing with. Could be mice at Jackson Laboratories. Could be non-human primates in Alice, Texas. Where am I going with this? As I move through my career, especially in academia, Titles are very important. Not only are they important to the actual employee, but they're important to the institution. Remember, a lot of academic institutions have to derive their outside funding. And when you go to these facilities, not, not even just the U.S. feds, but when you go to the U.S. feds and other facilities, they will look at what's the roster of the faculty look like? How are they credentialed? And that's where being an ACLAM uh, resident graduate wasn't in my wheelhouse. For me to have stayed on in academia at a large mid-level to large academic program, I would have need to have been board certified laboratory animal medicine. And I wasn't. Hmm. 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 And that's the difference now for sure. You know, how would I do it different? I'd recognize, but that was looking down the road. If you had told me when I was in West Lafayette, Indiana, going to Purdue Vet School, that someday I was going to spend over 30 years working with non-human primates, particularly great apes, I would have said, what are you been? <laughs> Did, didn't know. If I knew, then maybe I would have had enough forethought to then go in and I would have been the second uh, member of the Purdue class of 87 that would have gone into a laboratory animal residency program. But I didn't know. Hmm. And it hmm. just got to the point where it's very difficult to, quote unquote, study on your own when you're holding down a full time job to try to be board certified. And I've known some folks, some colleagues, and I am just in awe. Yes, it took them maybe a couple more times than going to a residence program to pass the test. But the fact that they had the metal, the gumption, 
the stick to the toughness, on top of they're probably running a family. I mean, and they still pass the boards. Wow. I'm in awe. But so, that's how I would, I would probably do it differently if I really wanted to stay in academia to answer your question. So would you say that individuals that are looking to hire on residents from residency programs absolutely need to build in time for their residents to study? Oh, <clears throat> why, you know, I'll ask this question, but then I'll answer the question. Why'd you bring them on in the first place? Was it just because they're a, a body? They have a DVM degree. They've completed a residency program, but they didn't cross the finish line. You need to embellish their career. You need to see the absolute joy of them crossing the finish line by being board certified. It's winning the gold medal. It's running the marathon. I mean, it's amazing. It, it's, and, it's, and it's impactful. And as a leader in, in that work environment, and you're working with that individual, man, it, it doesn't get any better than that. Wow. It, so anybody that's looking to recruit, you know, newly graduated residents, well, even before the pandemic, and the pandemic changed a lot of the uh, workforce, you know, uh, options. But even before then, you, you needed to recognize that they have to fulfill this part of their persona that you need to give them time. You need to manage in time for them so that they totally enrich themselves professionally. Absolutely. Absolutely.